two of a summer series. So we're going to do this all the way from now all the way through into September. Um, so buckle up. If you don't like it, you know, maybe take the summer off. Um, <laughs> But it's about language, and we're calling it Christianese, because uh, what we're doing is we're kind of exploring Christian phrases or common Bible verses that maybe we've heard a lot, or maybe we've heard too much, right? When we hear something too much, uh, it kind of loses its flavor, right? There's, this, uh, there's actually a study that they did on telling stories, uh, and say you have a personal experience. Like, say you go on this awesome, awesome trip. Uh, and you go on this trip and you experience so much awesomeness and you come back and people are like, how are your trip? And the first time you explain it, you're like, it was so great. Like in the magnitude of it is all in your heart and it's welling up. And then when you explain it, it kind of falls flat. It feels like it wasn't that great of a trip at all. Right. Do you, have you ever had that feeling? And then as you tell it again, it's kind of like, oh, that diminishes it even a little bit more. And so like the more you tell that story, the less and less it kind of means to you. And the more and more it's out in the world, the more and more it's just a story now and you're not as connected to it as you were. And that's just the same with language. When we use words over and over and over again, we all have catcher. I, I used to say, uh, my father-in-law can attest to this because he would make fun of me when I first met him. Happy Father's Day. Uh, when I, I would say sweet a lot. And when I was 21, 22, I'd be like, yeah, sweet, sweet, sweet. Um, it's probably why I lost my hair. But anyways, it was sweet, sweet. Uh, and you would make that because it would just come up. That was in my vernacular, right? That was just something that I would say as a response to almost everything. Right? We all have these words that we come back to, and after a while, we have to check in with them and go, is that word, is that language, is that phrase still really speaking to me right now? Uh, and Jesus had a beautiful way of speaking, speaking in both stories, in both phrases that would linger with us, that would, that would have power. And here's what's remarkable about Jesus' phrases and stories and words. They have not lost their flavor for over 2,000 years. You have to be telling a very, very good story for it to still be interesting 2,000 years later, right? Even some of Jesus' like, coolest phrases were just plays on words that we don't even see because we're translating it from his Aramaic into Greek into English, and so we lose a little bit of that flavor. Like, for instance, this is in uh, Matthew. Oh, did that get moved? I think that's in there. Yeah, Matthew 23 through 24. Now, this gets used a lot. It says, you blind guides. Sometimes it's just said you blind people, uh, but he's talking to Pharisees here. Uh, you strain out a gnat but you swallow a camel. So there's an image for you, right? Like, so what he's saying is basically in religious stuff and what you're talking about, you're basically straining out the tiny stuff, you're missing the big stuff, right? But what's even more memorable and what the Aramic hearers would have heard in this is a clever play on words that would have stuck with them because it rhymed. Basically, the word for gnat in Aramic is gelma, gelma, and then the word for kama is gemla. So that's gelma and gemla. So you strain out a gelma, but swallow a gemla, right? So at the end of it, they're going, oh, that was rather clever, right? They're gonna, that's going to stick with them. Jesus was fabulous at language, at wordplay, at stuff that's going to stick with you in your mind and in your head. Let's take a master of language, the ineffable Jay-Z, who just became a billionaire, right? His famous phrase, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man, <laughs> comma, right? I'm not a business, I'm a business man, right? That it, when we use language and we master language, we can become billionaires. That's the, that's the whole point, right? We can also use devastating language. You know this if you've ever gotten a text message, a text message you sent that you spent so much time crafting, making sure you used all the correct punctuation, all, all the correct words, and all you get back is a simple K. <laughs> K, right? It can hurt us. Words have the power to build things up and to tear things down. Words are incredibly powerful. In the Hebrew tradition, uh, the ancient Hebrews believed that words, 
or the vehicle God chose to create the entire universe. When God creates, he chooses to speak it out in language. And so words, as we speak, and the the words that we choose, the language that we choose, these words, they actually create new realities. When Martin Luther King gets up on a stand and says, I have a dream in front of all of those people, did you know that his approval rating at that was just above half of the United States that said he was doing a good job? Half of the United States that would have supported him when he took that stage. And now as we look back, we can't even, well, hardly imagine a reality where it was only half, right? But it was thanks to his words, coupled with his actions, in which things absolutely moved forward. There's this awesome rabbi named Rabbi uh, Joshua Heschel, and you should read everything he's ever written. He wrote this amazing uh, book on the Sabbath. It's dense. Read it one paragraph at a time. Just sit back and go like, what did he just say? Uh, But he uses language in a fantastic way, and his whole world was built upon what words we use and changing the world around him using language and sermon and all of that. Uh, But when he met Martin Luther King, he took a moment where he's in an interview. He explains that I needed to step back. I need to step back and let this man speak. And I needed to walk with him. And when he walked with him at Birmingham, at the march in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and, or in Selma, I'm sorry, when he walked with him at the, the march on Selma and the dogs came out and the hoses were there, as he finished the walk, he said, it was like my feet were praying. All thanks to the words of someone else. Folks, as we encounter the scripture, the Bible, the holy words, the holy text of God, we have to take a step back and say, I'm going to follow this. And in that way, I'm going to enact what these words are saying. I'm going to take these words seriously so that my hands and my feet are actually enacting that prayer. Language is so powerful. But we humans, we tend to think that once we get a hold on language, especially if we're well-educated, right? We have all the big fancy words and we can use these in big fancy ways uh, to just basically like kind of push people down on an intellectual level so that no matter what we say, we kind of get them because we've got these awesome words and we know what to do, right? Once we master words, we think we've got control. And that's very dangerous because once you think you've got something all figured out, you begin to control it. And guys, we don't have a great track record with control, (laughs) right? Whenever someone becomes all-powerful, too much control, things go bad very, very, very quickly. No one person should have control over everything, right? That's, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. And especially when it comes to language, a lot of the people that we give the most power to are the people that stand in front of a microphone. Take Adolf Hitler or even Winston Churchill, fighting for two separate things, but they split the world only using a microphone. Only their words. None of them went out and fought in battle. None of them went out and did that. They are just standing in front of a microphone telling their truth, and they split the entire world in which everyone went to war over. That's how powerful words can be, and especially how powerful words can be when they get into a person who can use them rather well. Uh, I I use words for a living, um, and that all started uh, back when I was about 19. Um, I was a worship leader at the time, so I was uh, playing music in churches. They weren't brave enough to give me a microphone because they knew I'd say uh, crazy things. So they just said, hey, take this guitar, play the songs to the lyrics that are already written. Uh, so I did that uh, for a number of years. But at 19, I, uh, my buddy, who was playing drums in my uh, worship band at the time, uh, lived in Sacramento. And uh, he would always play. We would do little tours or whatever, and he would come out to me. And, and I knew him since I was like five years old, but we weren't like super, super close. We were just 
like we were good buddies, like, and, and we knew each other. He was probably my oldest friend, but he wasn't like my closest friend. Um, and he invited me uh, to be a part of his wedding uh, party when he got married. And he got married very young, like 20, uh, and I was 19. So this is like, you know, like very, uh, very new to me. I'd never been in a wedding. I didn't know how that worked. And he just basically did it over the phone, and he called me, and he said, hey, I'd love it if you'd just be up there with me. And I was like, oh, it's such an honor. I'd love to do that. Uh, and so I get there, and I get to the wedding, uh, and it's the day of the wedding, and they're going through a rehearsal. They only have this church for like a certain number of hours, and so we get there at like 3 p.m., and uh, the wedding planner, who's sort of telling us all where we're going to stand and what we're going to do, uh, says, okay, well, will the maid of honor and the best man please come forward? And I kind of look around, and I was like, I wonder who the best man is. And then the maid of honor gets up, and then uh, they're just like, and the best man? And then Chris, my friend, turns around, and he just gives me one of these. <laughs> and I went... What? And so the language Chris had used is, I would just love it if you would be up there with me. I will never forget that quote because I've thrown that at him multiple times. I had no clue that meant I would love for you to be my best man. So I went up on stage and just in typical kind of like performer fashion went, yeah, okay, I can own this role. Walk up and take my place and quickly take out my cell phone. I text Chelsea and I was like, buy everything on the registry. I think I got him like a board game or something. We bought him a Blu-ray player or something at the time because I had no idea. Uh, and then they hand me the rings, which I'm already freaking out about. I put those in my pocket. And then they said, okay, Josh, tonight when you give your speech, uh, here's where you stand and here's where you hold your microphone. This is like 4 p.m. at the time. They're getting married at like 6. That speech is going to go on at like 7.30. And we have zero time for me to like escape, go get a laptop and type out like an awesome speech. Right, so I'm sort of sweating and freaking out, and so like the whole time I'm just on autopilot. I have no, I have no remembrance, no memory whatsoever of where I was supposed to stand, where I was supposed to go. So the whole wedding, I was like, "What are we doing now? What are we doing?" Because uh, all I was thinking about was the speech. And I get up on the microphone uh, for the speech, and uh, they, the whole crowd is there. It's a big wedding. Uh, and these are people that I grew up with. My dad was a pastor there when I was a child, and so these people are all kind of like in expectation, like, what's he going to say? And I get up there, and I, I grab the microphone, and something within me shifted the minute that I hit my hand upon the microphone, and I realized, ooh, not that I'm good at this. This is not where the story is headed. <laughs> I said, ooh. I like this, <laughs> right? Like, ooh, this is fun. Um, and so I started talking, and I started talking, and I started telling stories of how Chris and I became friends. And then, because I had nothing else to say, I simply said, hey, I know Chris, and I know what he would want more than anything is to turn this moment over to God. So I just love it if we could all pray together over this new couple. And I prayed, and I stopped, and I left the stage, and I went, oh my goodness, that's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. And it went over fantastically well, guys. It really did. Then, as I, got, as I got way too big for my britches, I was like, oh, I'm addicted to this microphone thing. I've got to be up there again. Uh, the mother of the groom, Miss Lori Fox, who still scares me to this day, said, I need someone to make an announcement um, to tell people that the, the, uh, the cake is being served. And, and I gladly went, oh, well, I've got this. So I, I, I came up to her and then she said, hey, also, can you just uh, tell everyone that the uh, after party is gonna be at our place, here's our address. Now, once again, this family is just not great with communication or I'm terrible at hearing things. What she meant is, hey, make this announcement, period. Then tell everyone, meaning the groom's party, like, like the, the bridal party, uh, that the after party is at this address. I got on stage in front of this entire wedding and said, God, with all the confidence in the world, hey guys, 
The cake is served, and guess what? The after party is at 124 Walnut Creek Lane, whatever it was, and go be merry. I got off the stage to a Miss Lori Fox that looked like she was going to murder me. <laughs> uh, and she said, look, it's fine. We've got a big backyard, but if more people show up, you're going to have to buy beer. And I was like, I think I can do that. Already spending all of my money on a Blu-ray player that I had for Chris. So I ended up having to put a bunch of beer on my credit card, and yeah, it took me a while to pay off. Anyway, words can be very, very dangerous. Do you see how it can be dangerous when we misuse them, when we don't understand? How lovely would it be in regular language if we had punctuation to guide us, right? Instead, we have to remain on like inflection and, and facial stuff, and that's why talking on the phone is so difficult, right? Like Language is difficult when it's not written down, and then when it becomes written down, it becomes difficult in its own new way, right? We write something down, and one person can read it and say, oh, I think I see this in this text, and another person can be like, no, 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 that means this. Our country is radically divided at this point, all because we can look at a document called the Constitution and pull out different things from it. And then our religion, our Christianity, is incredibly divided because we can take this huge text, this Bible, this library of beautiful story, word, wisdom, and we can say, well, I see this and this. And then someone can say, well, I see something completely opposite. And then instead of going like, huh, why do you see it that way? We go, well, I'm going to start my own church over here. Then I'm going to start my own denomination over here. And then we fragment. We fragment, and I say this statistic all the time because it's the most shocking thing in the world. There are 33,000 denominations within Protestant Christianity. Protestant Christianity. Because that's the very core of what we Protestants do. We protest, right? So we break off. Well, that's not, that little dude, you're not baptizing the right way, you're not doing that. So we need to completely separate ourselves and never talk to you guys again. I was raised Southern Baptist. The only difference between a Northern Baptist and a Southern Baptist is that we supported slavery for a very long time. And we only said we were sorry for that in the 1990s. Ooh, <laughs> I'm no longer a Southern Baptist, right? So you, there's all this division, and most of it comes from language. Most of it comes from how we're reading this sacred text, this crazy, beautiful thing. And guys, it's really easy to think that we can get it right with this language because we have more information on it than ever before. Take this right here. This is a, um, a popular uh, commentary thing you can buy. I can't afford it. Um, but this is a, it's called Logos, and it comes with 61 volumes that are all commentaries on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now what's crazy, we do the next slide there. That equates to 28,000 pages. 61 volumes, 28,000 pages. There are only, in a standard Bible, your average Bible, there are 1,200 pages. Therefore, we have more than 20 times commentary than we do actual text. And that's only growing. This is only one little section. You can go on the internet and you can find just tons of information all on this one little text. We have more information on commentary, uh, on, on, on biblical exegesis, than Paul did. And he wrote some of the Bible, <laughs> right? We are in an age in an explosion of information on this text. And so it's so awesome. We, we have the ability to go in, even as a layperson, you can just go in and you can start studying this stuff. And that's incredible, right? What an amazing time we're living in. The problem is, there's so much. How do we filter down to the good? How do we filter down to what's true, to what's honest? And how do we not lose the actual text, the actual gospel, the actual stuff that we were left with? Right? We can become a little too big for our britches because we have so much information. And I think the key to this is not study, but it's the heart. It's are you in personal relationship with this 
Jesus, with this God, with this Holy Spirit, right? Especially from the tradition that I came from, we claim to be Trinitarian, but really, if you look at the religion, it's kind of unitarian. It's the Bible, and that's its own little section, and then the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father all live within it, <laughs> right? That's not good theology. There's a whole world, and the Bible is supposed to unlock that whole world for us. It's supposed to be a beautiful guide filled with wisdom that can show us a beautiful way to live if we let it. But we can't just read it. We need to rely on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to move us into greater realities and to move us into the text and make those words come alive. Because without it, it's only words on a page. It's only words on a page. And we get way too caught up, especially in the intellectual kind of versions of church, in what this one word means or what that one word means. That's all so much fun. I love that more than anybody. But the truth of the matter is, like, we, we get way too caught up in it. And when we do that, we build structures, we build identities that really don't look a whole lot like what Jesus' original plan was for our communities and for your life. Just take that personally, for your own life. We're building things that are far too complex. To talk about that, we need to talk about ships. So uh, in Sweden, there's this guy right here. We can pull down the lights, Alex, so that people can probably make that out a little better. Um, this is a ship called the Vasa. Has anybody ever heard of this? In, in Sweden, it's called Vasa, but I can't, I'm just going to go Vasa because um, we're here. Uh, so Vasa, this ship uh, is, is illustrious in Swedish history. Basically, what happened was, and this is almost like every like, sort of northern European country, they each controlled the world at sort of one point in history. And it's hysterical to see what some of the countries controlled the world from. I grew up a little bit in Amsterdam. Uh, they controlled the world simply on tulip bulbs, right? So these cultures all had these huge economic booms and all did very interesting things with that money when they got it. The Swedes, uh, who were in that Norwegian area, who were very good at building ships, said, hey, when, when they were on top of the game and they had the most money in all of the world, they said, hey, we want to invest all of our money into ships. We want to create the grandest naval fleet the world has ever seen. And to do that, the king at the time said, I want to create one ship in particular, one ship that when people see this ship coming, they will want to turn tail and run home because it will be so grand, so beautiful, and so powerful that no one will ever want to go up against it. We shall call it Wasa. <laughs> Why they picked that name, I do not know. But they said, we'll call it Wasa. And so this king hires this master shipbuilder and says, I want this glorious ship made. And he gives him his idea for the ship. And he says, I want the most cannons on it that there have ever been. And so the shipbuilder replies, that would be 34 cannons, sir. And he said, 64 cannons. <laughs> and the shipbuilder replied, that's impossible. And the king said, I will put you to death unless you make this. And the shipbuilder said, I will make it for you. So he goes in and he starts building this ship. And the only way you can fit 64 cannons on a regular ship without it sinking is to build upward. So they built this elaborate double-decker cannon system in which there were cannons on the bottom. These were bronze cannons, because they're not just going to go with any old metal. Bronze cannons on the bottom, bronze cannons on the top. And what would happen was those top cannons would have this huge advantage over other ships during battle because it could shoot down into the deck of the ship. This is like unheard of. But the shipbuilder, being a wise man and knowing that at the end of this, this thing is not going to work out, goes back to the king and says, hey, listen, this thing is really taking off and it's looking good. 
Uh, the only problem is it's for sure going to tip over. <laughs> and the king was like, that'll never happen. Keep building the ship or I'll put you to death. And he says, I will keep building the ship. So what happens is he keeps building the ship and he actually passes away. But he passes it on to his son. And the son takes it upon himself to really try and convince the king that this, this ship is not going to work. And so he goes to the king and he says, listen, I know you didn't listen to my father. Please listen to me. I have some new education on this stuff. And I know you've been building the ship for years now. But I got to tell you, unless we widen the thing, it's going to tip over. And the king says, it's impossible. God is on our side. He literally said words like that. God is on our side. This ship will not tip over. So they throw this grand party when the ship is done. Thousands gather at the port to go see this bad boy take off. Do we have the other pictures of the ship? This is, I mean, it was like, in its day, it was gorgeous. It was a modern marvel. Uh, and, and it took off from the seaport, and it went approximately a kilometer out, and a gust of wind comes, and the ship tears, and then comes back. There's uproarious applause, right? Like, King was right, God is on our side, this bad boy's not going down. What happened in that first gust of wind is that the bronze cannons that were on wheels, smart stuff, uh, went to the other side of the ship, thus shifting the weight of the ship completely. So when a second gust of wind happened, just a few meters later, that ship went down to the sight of thousands, the sight and horror of thousands watching. The ship sank, it went down, and it was undiscoverable for over 400 years. Now, what's fascinating about this is in the Swedish culture, they really point to this moment as the moment that they came up with a word we used last week called legome. And legome means not too much, not too little. <laughs> and they decided that's the way we shall drive our culture forward. Never again will we try and build something so grand that will shift to the bottom. But here's what's even cooler. During World War II, when they were making a ton of rubber stuff, they got a lot more money. They experienced a little golden boom again, and they decided, hey, we know exactly where that ship sank. Could we get it out of there and restore it and create like a museum of it? And so they used this huge elaborate process where they had these balloons and the thing literally came up. And what was crazy is in the Baltic Sea, it's an oxygen absent sort of water. So there's a specific type of worm that breaks down. I know I got real nerdy on this this week. Specific type of worm that breaks down wood. And that worm wasn't able to live in that environment. So when they pulled it up, it was remarkably intact. So what they did is they, and we can pull the lights down again, they restored the whole thing, and there it sits to this day in a museum, sometimes it's out there, but in a museum, so people can come and see it and be reminded that when we get too big, when our hubris grows too large, drastic things can happen, right? Drastic things can happen. When we think we've got it all figured out, God is on our side, we can push things too far. And that's still happening in our world today. Check out this quote. This was mind-blowing to me as I was studying language this week. Um, this is from an awesome book called um, Shining Light on the Difficult Words of Jesus by David Biven. Um, it's a quick read, but it, 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 it's kind of mind-blowing. So it's, it says, until the early Middle Ages, Hebrew was written without vowels. But in the 6th century AD, there were only a few native Hebrew speakers left. And most Jews had only a passive knowledge of Hebrew. It was then that a system of vowel signs was developed by the Masoretes, uh, the Jewish scholars of the period, to aid the reader in pronunciation. In accordance uh, with the custom observed since the third century BC, and this is all talking about a name of God, when reading or reciting scripture, they superimposed the vowel signs of the word Adonai upon the four consonants of God's name. This was to remind the reader that he should not attempt to pronounce the unutterable uh, name of God. Thus, Yahweh would be read as Adonai. One more slide there. 
When Christian scholars in Europe first began to study Hebrew, they misunderstood this warning device. Lacking even the most elementary knowledge of Jewish culture and custom, they fused the vowels of Adonai with the consonants of the divine name, which was Yahweh, uh, a name, and thus gave the church Jehovah, a word which has no meaning in Hebrew. So guys, Jehovah, which exists in thousands of our songs and thousands of our things, was a made-up, crammed-together word. That's not to say every word is sort of a made-up word, right? So it's not to say that that word isn't awesome and that we can't use it. All I'm saying is the original intention of the scripture was never to say this, but it was to say Yahweh. And so now good translations of the Bible now include Yahweh instead of the word Jehovah, right? There's a fabulous Monty Python movie called The Life of Brian in which a guy yells Jehovah and gets stoned to death. None of that really would have happened. Anyway, um, <laughs> Yahweh. So we can see that even in our own culture right now, there are, there are ways that we miss stuff. We just miss it. And that seems like just a light little thing, but it does point to something grander, and it points to something a little more dangerous. And David goes on to explain this when he says... Uh, to our embarrassment, we continue to perpetuate this error in Christian books, hymns, songs, and translations of the Bible. The non-word Jehovah would be simply an amusing mistake if it did not illustrate vividly Christians' continuing lack of, under of understanding of Hebrew language and Jewish practice. Because really, that's at the core of what it is. As Christians, we're not taught, hey, you, you should look deeper. Study deeper. Figure out what is this. Question things. Pull it apart. You see a word you don't understand? Go find someone who might. Go read something that might enlighten you on that. And then go find someone, because really what we need to do is just find someone, right? Find someone who might have a little bit, might be further along down the path, or might have a little bit more knowledge. And, and don't be afraid to be students for the rest of your lives. Because that's all Jesus was setting up his disciples for. He was like, you're going to continue to learn. You never stop learning. It keeps going. You're going to do greater things than these, right? You're going to keep learning. You're going to keep moving. We're called to be students for the full long haul. Not people that eventually get to a place where we go, oh, I've got it, I'm not moving from here, and everyone else has less knowledge than I do. The world is an amazing teacher. God is an incredible teacher. And if we can pay attention, then we can actually listen. But when we get it wrong like that, and this is a minor one, but we get it wrong in big ways, toxic theology, toxic language has been used to enslave people, to kill people, to do all sorts of terrible things, all because we bent language to kind of do what we wanted it to do. And that's the danger. And Jesus comes at a time where, where the words, the language, the Torah, these holy words, this stuff, in his point in history, he comes at a time when people had taken these words, these high priests, these religious people had taken these words to a point that they were oppressive. To a point that they were giving more power to the powerful people and less power to the less powerful people. And so when Jesus shows up and on the scene, he decides he's going to use words that will unravel those words. He's going to create a new reality, a new paradigm. And that's what we're going to look into this morning. But first, uh, we're going to do a little weird thing. I'm going to pray here in the middle, and then we'll get into the Beatitudes, the beautiful words of Christ. Let me pray. God, we're very grateful uh, for language. I'm very grateful for um, being able to uh, have this wonderful, amazing tool of communication. Um, but I pray that we'd understand that uh, in the words that you use, the words that you use are meant to unlock something inside of us that language really cannot name. Uh, that it's supposed to bring us into a place in relationship with you where words fall flat, um, but our spirit speaks. 
So God, I pray over this this morning as we uh, unpack the most gorgeous words um, that you use while you're here, uh, that you would give us an open heart and open mind into seeing that. Amen. Uh, so a little over a year and a half ago, most of you guys know this, um, my brother suffered a very bad uh, motorcycle accident and was put into the hospital um, for heart surgery. Uh, he had ripped his aorta, which was basically like, like the doctors when we got him there were like, yeah, I, we don't do this operation a lot because quite frankly, like most people who have this uh, really just die on the scene. Um, and so you can imagine my dismay as I walk into the uh, waiting room and hear that. Uh, and I've, I've told the story a thousand times, so I'm going to tell a really short version. If you want to hear the full version, we can go to coffee or something. But um, my brother and I are best friends. Uh, he's the closest person I have in my life. So this was absolutely devastating to me, and I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, and the unique part about this is I'm a pastor, my dad's a pastor, my mom's a pastor. So like we had like five, and my, my dad's already skipped around to like three churches in the LA area. So we had like seven churches that had all come together and they're all in this waiting room. The waiting room is packed. There's like no room for anyone else. To the point we had to ask these pastors who were just trying to be good, just like, we gotta go now. We got enough pastors in here. Like if you just <laughs> scoot around. Um, but there are all these people praying over Brendan, over us, uh, just, and, and it really, if you looked it out and all the emails we sent out and everything, it could have been in the hundreds of thousands of people that were just praying for this unique situation. And here's the crazy part about that. It did not matter to me. I, I did not feel that that had any power in that moment. I didn't feel like numbers mattered in that moment. I didn't understand what was going on. I remember a specific moment where my family went around the hospital bed as he was about to go into surgery, and my dad said, we're all gonna pray, and I just could not bring myself to close my eyes. My only prayer was, God, just do not be a jerk here. Do not do this. And so they, they wheeled him off, and, and I remember thinking, man, I just wish things could be normal. Have you ever been in a situation that's so bad that normal sounds like paradise? Like normal gets a bad rap. Normal is incredible. <laughs> when you are in a normal scenario and situation, normal's the best. We just have no eyes to see it. And I just remember praying to God. I was like, all I want is normal. All I want is normal. I don't want some big miraculous. I just want normal. Could we just get back to like playing cards by the lake in Vermont every summer with my brother? Can we just do that? I just want normal back. And so they do the surgery and they wheel them out and we don't know for a couple hours and those hours are just excruciating. We're just sitting there like, what is going on? And they finally come back and they say, uh, the surgery went incredible and your brother's gonna make a full recovery uh, and, and everything's gonna be okay. And, and I remember staying with him that night uh, as he was sleeping, he didn't wake up for several hours, but as he was sleeping and I just remember thinking, oh man, I was praying for normal and God in this situation has given me a new normal. How much more beautiful are those card games going to be by the lake? How much more beautiful is that just time going to be where I'm hanging with Brendan? How much beautiful is that beer that I'm going to grab with him later going to be? Everything is more beautiful because I, God had given me not just a normal, but a new normal, and even more than that, a beautiful normal. And even more than that, he'd given me a beautiful attitude about the situation. A beautiful attitude. See, Jesus' call when he shows up, and when he talks to people, it's not like, I want to take you from this place and I'm going to transplant you in a new land where you're going to get everything figured out. No, 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 no. In a unique way of God, he says, no, I want you here, but I want to give you a new, beautiful attitude on life. I want you to see that what's normal for you right now can be transformed, and I want to give you a beautiful attitude, a new filter, a new reality that you can live within and do that. That's the good news of Jesus, and he does that in these things called the Beatitudes, 
beautiful attitudes. That's not really a breakdown, but I just think it's fun that they do that. <laughs> a beatitude, a beautiful attitude. So he gets up, and this is the longest. We don't have time to go through all of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're just going to do the Beatitudes today, which are his beautiful opening. So when you open up a speech or you open up a, a, any kind of like public speaking thing, right, you're going to want to hook people with something. You're going to want to say something that people go, whoa, and then for the rest of the time you unpack that and you say, like, okay, uh, I get what he was saying there. But what we do when we read these, we read these in a really trite kind of smiley way, like, great, these are really fun and beautiful and pretty and all that kind of stuff. You have to understand that to the original hearers, these words were not just beautiful. They were absolutely, this will get you killed, radical. Like, I can't believe he's saying this stuff out loud. Can you believe, should we even be here? Should we leave? This is crazy. No one speaks like this. No one's speaking to these people. And these are the words that he chooses. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Are you sensing a theme here? Blessed are people who really should not be blessed. Blessed are people who may have never heard that you are blessed, that God cares about you, that you're beautiful. This is shocking to these people. They're like, no, 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 those are the people on the outside. I'm supposed to be blessed because I'm hitting all the right marks, right? So then blessed are the, um, the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is a radical idea, because at the time, it was them versus Rome, right? This was not a peaceful environment. This was, they were expecting this Messiah, this person to come, and we're going to take up arms, and we are going to kill these people, right? And Jesus is saying in his, first, in his huge sermon, not his first sermon, but his huge sermon, his magnum opus, that, hey, actually, it's the ones that are trying to hold the tension in the middle, the peacemakers, the ones that are trying to solve this on both sides, those are the people they're blessed. And then he says, uh, blessed, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, oh, sorry, that's, that's next, Alex. I give away my prophet. We can take it. Perfect. <laughs> uh, basically, what that, that sermon is, Dallas Willard, uh, who's this amazing, amazing theologian, uh, was a USC guy uh, for years. And just like, I mean, there are stories of Dallas Willard where his wife uh, tells where she would literally carry around a pen and paper to write down what he was saying. And you know, you have to be pretty on the ball if your wife is carrying around a pen and paper and writing down what you're having to say, right? This guy is humming on a different level. And what Dallas Willard says about the Beatitudes in this uh, book called The Divine Conspiracy, which everyone should read, um, it is, he says, if you preach this sermon properly, it is an incredibly dangerous and unsettling sermon to speak in any church, right? He's saying that this is a sermon, and he calls this, uh, this term that I think is so amazing. This is a sermon that points to people that we believe are the unblessable, the unblessed. The people that we do not believe, or the things we do not believe, or the concepts we do not believe, or the things about ourselves, or our actions, whatever it might be, fill in the blank, that cannot possibly be blessed. Jesus is breaking down this paradigm. It's getting rid of the pecking order. Everything in Jesus' society was who's in, who's out. It was perpetually, like, it was a structure, 
that had taken hundreds, if not thousands of years to perfect. And what he's doing with these simple words is he's unraveling the whole thing. To these, this audience members, they are like, no, I would have worked my entire life. My family has worked for generations to not be these people. These poor in spirit people, these persecuted people, those are the people that we are working hard by our own volition, by our own crisis, by our own work to get out of so that we can be pious people and we can be the ones that are blessed. That's how everything works. And Jesus is like, no, that's not at all how it works. You're just blessed. You're just blessed. There is no such thing as unblessable. You're blessed. You're beautiful. And you deserve to hear that. And so there's probably a crisis going on in terms of the people that have worked really, really hard to get to this point because they're like, what about all that worry? What about all that fear? What about all that anxiety? What about all that work I put into building the life I have right now? I worked so hard to get here, and those people have not worked at all. And what Jesus' grand message is, if you look through the Beatitudes and then even go through the Sermon on the Mount, you can see almost in every line what he's trying to pull people out of is anxiety, is fear but mostly worry and anxiety. He's just trying to say like, no guys, your fear, your greatest fear is your identity and who you think you are and who you're trying to build yourself up to be by yourself. That's anxiety and it has no place in the kingdom of God. It's not real. You're blessed. There's no such thing as unblazable. And, and he's just saying like the, the the time you spend worrying about your identity, the time you spend worrying about what you're going to do with your life is actually just more of a waste of time. Hand that over to me. See what I can do with it. You go forth. You live and you live knowing in the knowledge that you are blessed. And the center of all of that anxiety and all of that is control, right? We don't want to hand that over. <laughs> We don't want to give that away because I know what I need for my life. And honestly, it's very scary if I give it away. I've done a pretty good job with my own anxiety and worry holding the fort down. I don't think that if I give it away, that's actually going to help. But he keeps going, no, 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 no. I just need you to do this. And yet we keep going like, no, how am I going to fix this? And worry, worry is the craziest thing in the whole world, right? At, at the basis of everything, it does nothing. And yet we give it so much power. Jesus talks about this all the time, especially in the Sermon Mount. Like, what, who of you have worried and has added one second to your life? Right? It doesn't do anything, and yet we, we, we pray to it more than we pray to God. Worry is like, I've heard someone say, worry is praying to the wrong God. Right? It's just it's giving so much power to this thing, and at the very essence of that, it's control. How am I going to fix this problem? And especially in most of our issues, in most of the big things in our lives, what words am I going to use? What language am I going to use to actually fix this problem that I have right now? How am I going to come up with the right words that are going to convince this person that everything's okay? Or that I, I'm actually a great person? Or that I can get that promotion? Again, fill in the blank. What words, what language can I use? I call this type of worry the prodigal walk. The prodigal walk is basically there's this beautiful story in the Bible called the prodigal son, which we won't go all into. But there's a section of it where this, this prodigal son um, basically tells his dad, I, I'm, I'm out, I want my inheritance, which is the equivalent of like, I want you dead. Uh, and the father radically, and we always get caught up on how weird it is that he would ask his father that question. The crazy part is that the father actually gives him the money. The proper response is, get out of my house, you're dead to me. That's the proper cultural response. This father, for some reason, goes, okay, yeah, you can have the money. So he gets the money and he goes off, but there's this, the prodigal walk period is, is something that I think we fly by all the time. And it's when he's out there, 
And he squandered all of that inheritance on, on, on bad living. And here's a really fun like, language thing for you. Here's a little language nugget for this morning. Prodigal does not mean lost. In fact, in Hebrew, it's most often translated, or I'm sorry, in the Greek there, it's most often translated as wasted. This is a story of a son who wasn't lost, but only lost to himself. There's no instance in the story, which we're going to get to in just a second, where, like, where he's actually lost to the father. He's only lost to himself. What he's doing is simply wasting his time trying to build his own identity. He's wasting his life. It's the story of the wasteful son, not just the lost son. So he gets to this point where he's, he's, he's squandered all of his wealth, he's wanting to eat pig food, and he basically goes, hey, if I go back to my father, how awesome would that be? I'll ask him if I could just be a servant, because I know his servants get treated better than this, and I'll humble myself, and this is the language I'm going to use. And here's where this, the text comes in. It says, I will get up, and I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, and here this is, this is your rehearsed script. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I, am no, I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. We can stop right there. So um, this is a great script. In all honesty, it's a great apology, right? It's like it's humbling yourself. It's saying, like, I know I did an unspeakable thing, but here's what I want to do for you. And it's giving a deal. It's like, let's make a deal. We've got this. And so this script is what he uses. And he, he goes and he, he uses this script and he says he walks home. And that's the period that the scripture passes by. That's the period that Jesus chooses to pass by. But I think that's the most fascinating idea because it says that he goes away to a far off land, which means there's a long walk from that land to dad. And in that land to dad, I don't know if you've ever been in the car on your way to a stressful meeting or in the car on the way to a problem that you need to solve and you just keep racing through the words that you're going to say and, and you're just, you're, you're like, ah, surely if I say these things, I'm going to fix this problem. This language is going to solve everything. But what happens after that long walk, after all that worry, after all that wasted time, he gets to the Father, and the Father simply, I think we have that scripture. Is it a long way off there? Oh, no, I'm sorry. We, we skipped that one. Um, basically, the Father sees him from a long way off, and before the guy can get those words out of his mouth, he's embraced a robe is thrown around him, a ring is put on his finger, sandals on his feet, basically to say, like, you're home. You're here. Thank God you're here. Reinstating him as a son before he can even get the words out. And he gets the words out. He gets half the words out. But those aren't what changes the father's mind. Look at the two tales here. How much anxiety do we see in the prodigal? And how much anxiety do we see on the part of the father who gave the inheritance and his son went off? The father shows no signs of worry. No signs of anxiety, just signs of pure, elated joy that this son of his was home. There's no such thing as unblessable. There's no such thing as unblessable. And the one person in the story who can't believe that there's no such thing as unblessable is the brother. And it says that, sorry, uh, Alex, it was that one we just had up. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. So you've got a religious person. The brother has been living a pious life. He's been living that life. He's been working hard for his father. And his father has to come out and beg him to come in. Now, if you're working your whole life for your father, and your father is supposed to be the key in everything that you do, and you're supposed to be following him, do you think your father should have to beg you for anything? 
right? And yet, he comes out and he begs him, and he answered his father because at this point, he's gotten to the point in the religiosity that he believes he's better, he's surpassed. So he says, look, I've served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me so much as a young goat, which at that time, I guess that's a fun thing, a young goat, so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, again, the unblessable, uh, returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, reminding him, remember that's your brother, uh, this brother of yours was dead and is alive. Now, this is what's most fascinating to me in all of this story. It says, he was lost and is found. There is no moment in this story where the father says he was lost to me and he was found by me. It's just that personally that prodigal, that wasted time was lost to itself. And then as it came home, as it returned home to the care of the father, that's when it was found. We find ourselves when we give up control and we walk home. And the radical part of the story is that we have one brother who cannot put on the beautiful attitude, who cannot see that there is someone who can be blessed here, and that there is someone being blessed who now radically understands what it's to be blessed. And I would love to see a spin-offs on the prodigal son to see what the son does after this, what kind of radical forgiveness he practices in his life because of what he's seen, to know that even him who's done unspeakable things, there is no such thing as unblessable. And this is not just a story about other people. You are not unblessable. You are blessed. That's the entire message of Jesus. That's the entire point of the cross. That's the entire point of resurrection, is that there is nothing you can do to not be blessed. There is no such thing as unblessable. Let's pray together. God, I just want to thank you for um, our time this morning for uh, the ability to go through these stories, to go through this language, to really unpack and unearth what you have to say to us. And I pray that um, you'd make us good students this week. Amen. Um, we're going to take communion.